0: Well, good morning. Very good to see all of you this morning. And um, had a great week. I uh, had an opportunity to get away with uh, Eric and Ryan and Greg this, uh, this weekend uh, for some uh, great discussion and prayer and just seeing what God has done over this last year, talking about it, giving thanks for it, and looking ahead to 2021 I mean, we're, we're still here in August, and we're already looking ahead to 2021, and we figure it, it's, got to be, it's got to be better than this year, right? Uh, we've had so many things happen this year, so many trials, tribulations, struggles, um, but God is at work in the midst of all of it. And uh, a few weeks ago, we we were looking at a passage in in the book of Esther where we we talked about that. Do we see God's hand at work around us? Because sometimes it's hard. And we have to be intentional. We have to slow down a little bit, and we we have to be observant and look to see what it is that God is doing. And so uh, if you're just joining us, uh, whether you be online or here with us this morning, we have been in the book of Esther doing a study through that amazing little book. And uh, we've come a long way. We're near the tail end of our study right now. Um, so uh, in a minute, I'll just kind of give a, a brief review, not of the whole book, but at least of the last couple of chapters. But before I do that, uh, the, it's been said that boldness is not something you're born with. It is something that you either choose or not. Now, I know that some people are more extroverted uh, than than others, but Boldness is more than just being an extroverted uh, person, a person who's outgoing. And I think we clearly see that here in the book of Esther. Um, Both Mordecai and Esther are real-life examples of of people who have what I call bold faith. They, They exercise faith in such a way that that there is a courage and a boldness um, to it. It, There's a weightiness to their faith. And, And clearly we see that they are willing to risk it all for the glory of God and for the good of others. And their bold faith should be an inspiration to us all. So, as we think about the last couple of chapters where we've been, uh, you know, we, we, we know that there's a villain, we know that there's a heroine, but having been humiliated uh, by uh, the king's decision to honor Mordecai, Haman, uh, of course, gets what is coming to him. His wife initially says to him, hey, if Mordecai is of the Jewish people, you're doomed, okay? This is not going to turn out well for you. Haman then goes to the second second banquet that Queen Esther uh, throws, and there Esther does a few things. First, she reveals her request to the king. She reveals her nationality to the king, and then she reveals who it is that has manipulated the king into issuing an order or an edict that would result in the extermination of her people. And that is the wicked and vile Haman. And if you remember, the king is outraged. And he lashes out and gives, doles out justice. And Haman has ended up, he ends up being hung on the very gallows that he had ordained for Mordecai. So from the very first chapter of Esther... Throughout the entire book, but certainly up until where we are this morning, we see the hand of God at work, behind the scenes, orchestrating the events of the story so that it is unmistakable that God is in control. And we said very early on, this is an unusual book in that it's the only book in the Bible where God's name is not even mentioned. But yet, his fingerprints are everywhere. And that's the challenge for us today is, is that, you know, none of us have ever seen God. None of us have ever had God appear to us in our room. There, I've never had a booming voice to say, this is God. And yet, the Scripture says that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. And so... The king here, having been outraged, like I mentioned, ends up hanging Mordecai or impaling him, if you will, on his own gallows. And that is a a further indication that God is in complete control and he's moving this story to completion. And the theme of divine providence, which is woven through the entire book, is probably the main theme. But we also said very early on that there's another theme that's really important to understand, and that is human responsibility. Now, the sovereignty of God and human responsibility are not at odds. God often chooses to work through his people that God uses people who are willing to risk it all for his glory and the good of others. God is always looking for men and women who, by faith, are willing to risk it all. In fact, I think you could go so far as to say that when a person exercises bold faith, it changes everything. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to continue this study in the book of Esther Uh, Lord, thank you for what we have learned already. I pray that this morning, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher and our guide. And uh, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts, that we too might step out in bold faith, in bold obedience to your word. And Father, I pray that the insights that we glean from our time in chapter 8 here, that Lord, that they would be true of us. That as we look at Esther, as we look at Mordecai, that we would see in them a picture of how we ought to be. And so, Lord, I ask that you would speak through me this morning, in in Jesus' name, amen. So in this chapter, this morning, we're going to see um, that God is undoing all the evil that had been planned against God's people He's not only going to undo it, but he's going to give blessings to his people. He's going to reverse their fortunes, if you would. Um, So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to uh, chapter 8 of Esther. And we're going to read the entire chapter first, and then we'll go back through it a little bit at a time, hit some individual verses So we're going to start in verse one. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, and she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, "'If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight,' And if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time. And in the third month, which is the month of uh, Sivan, on the 23rd day, an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews and to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent. Letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and a copy of what was written was issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies." So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white and with a great wooden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced, The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews and a feast and a holy day. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. It's a fairly lengthy passage of Scripture, but I felt it was important for us to see it in context this morning. The most obvious truth in this passage is that God will right all wrongs, that he will repay, he will punish those who seek to do his people harm. But this morning, I really want to focus on on three timeless principles that I see here in this passage. These are principles that uh, need to find application in our own lives. And so and the first one is simply this: that bold faith changes the course of history. Bold faith changes the course of history. If you look at verses three and four, it says that Esther then spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. Now that that first line that Esther spoke again to the king. That's huge, because apparently this is the second time now that Esther has dared to go to the king unsummoned, and if you remember, you don't go to the king unsummoned, because if you do, most likely that is what's going to happen, unless the king extends the golden scepter to you, so this is the second time Esther comes before the king, and and takes a risk. She's risking her life once again for her people. This time, however, you notice something different about the way she approaches the king. She isn't standing. She approaches the king and she falls at his feet and weeps. This is different before she was standing in the courtyard when the king saw her. But here she falls at his feet and weeps and she does not get up until the king extends to her the golden scepter. And then she begs and she pleads with the king to revoke the order that he gave. And I just love how she, she, she says this, you know, if, you're, if you've got your Bibles, you can look at it, but this is so reminiscent of the first time when she's presenting um, her request or about to present her request before the king, you know, if it pleased the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if this seems right to the king, and if I have favor... With the, you know she 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 is being very respectful, very polite. She understands who who holds the power here, but she's making her case. And I think Esther is a wonderful picture of what every Christ follower ought to be like. Because when you think about what Esther is doing, Esther is interceding for her people. Why? How many of them does she really know? I mean, she knows Mordecai. She's probably got some friends that she grew up with, maybe some other extended relatives. No, she understands that she is a part of God's covenant family. And she cares about her people. She loves her people. And I was thinking, if this was true for Esther, how much more so should it be true of us? as Christ followers, of members of God's family. We call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ, but all too often, we find people who call themselves Christian at the throats of one another. Sometimes we're not very kind and loving. Esther was willing to risk her life for people, many of which, most of which, she did not know. But she knew they were a part of God's covenant family, that she was a part of God's covenant family. I mean, just consider the words of Jesus. Jesus, when he says, we're to love one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another even as I have loved you. No greater love, he says, has any man than he lay down his life for his friends. We're to love one another and honor one another deeply from the heart. We ought to be just as protective of one another as Esther was of her people. We should be the first to come to the defense of one another. Why? Because we're family. You know, that's the difference. You know, Christians, we don't just love our own. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what, what, what does that do for you? How does that get you ahead? He says it doesn't. He said even pagans do that. But we're called to love those who are outside the family. You know, next to Jesus, I think Paul probably gives us the best picture of what that looks like in in Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. I just, it, it, it always blows me away every time I read it, but this is what Paul says. He says, he's speaking of his brethren by race, the Jewish people, and he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. I mean, do you hear what Paul is saying there? He says, I, 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 would, I would prefer to be cut off from Christ, separated from him, bound and destined for hell itself if it would if it would help my brothers in the flesh come to Christ and be saved. Paul had an incredible heart for people as he ministered to them. And I'm I'm convinced that one of the reasons, and there are many, why we do not frequently share the gospel with people is that our hearts are not compelled by love or by the horrors of hell. I really don't. And I'm speaking to myself here. Even this past weekend, we talked a little bit about this as as elders and and just thinking about all the different reasons and the fact that, that God left us on this earth for a reason. And that's, that's to proclaim the gospel, it's to preach the gospel, it's, it's to be instruments in God's hands, uh, mouthpieces and hands and feet that God can use so that others might hear the glorious gospel of Christ, that they too can have a relationship with God, that they can be forgiven of their sin and receive the gift of eternal life. That's what we're called to do. We are, we are ambassadors for Christ. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Matthew 28 says we're to go into all the world and make disciples. That's what we're called to do. And, it, and obviously, it, it, you know, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, okay, Jesus, how much do I love you? I don't know. Are you keeping his commandments? Are you sharing the gospel with people? Are you making disciples? Are, are you loving the brethren? Is, does your life indicate the kind of transformation that God does in a person who has saving faith? I think the other thing is, you know, we talk about hell, we read about hell, but do we really believe it? Do we really believe that our neighbors and family members and friends and co-workers who do not know Jesus that if they were to die today would be forever in a place called hell a place of eternal torment separated from God and all that is good I think I go through life apathetic I used to walk by people all the time in the malls and laundromats and, and, and streets. And, and I would look at people and I would almost envision them suffering in, in, in hell. And, and, and I, to be perfectly blunt, I was a holy terror when I first became a Christian because I was sharing the gospel left and right. And then something happened. And I got comfortable and complacent. And I wasn't gripped anymore by hell. I wasn't gripped anymore by the love of Christ and the love for others. And, and I've been praying that God would change me, that he would give me his heart, that God would give me the heart of Paul, the heart of Esther. I love what William Booth said once. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. He said this, he said, if I could, I would have finalized the training of my soldiers with 24 hours hanging over hell to see its eternal torment. Esther's love for her people and her bold faith motivated her to risk her life yet again. And I want a heart like Esther's. I want that kind of faith. When, when I preach the gospel, when I'm sharing my story with other people, I, I want to have those words of hers just just reverberating in my brain and in my heart. that how can I bear the calamity that is coming to them? How can I bear to see their destruction? Well, how does the king respond? Well, he simply says, I I can't do anything about that. What is written is written. I can't revoke it. He can't revoke it, but he can mitigate it. Look at verse 8. But you, and by the way, you is emphatic here. So he says, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews. In the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So, on June 25th, 474 BC, A little over two months after Haman's letters were sent out, Mordecai issues an edict in the name of the king that the Jews everywhere were given permission to do this, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included. And to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, how many of you uh, have with you right now uh, the New International Version translation? just curious. I see several hands go up. Okay, for your sake, I'm going to bring this up. There's a little bit of ambiguity in this text in in verse 11. If you look, for instance, at uh, verse 11 here in the NIV, it talks about destroying and killing and annihilating any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children. You see how that's different than what we just read? It seems to be indicating that it's the women and children who are being attacked. But the ESV, the NAS, and almost every other translation reads uh, like this, that to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including women and children. Now, you say, well, that's still not exactly extremely clear. You can look at other verses, I mean, other translations. Basically, what the NIV has done is that they, they... well, I don't want to get to motives, but but I think because of the way the grammar is structured Um, they have included women and children, uh, Jewish women and children are the ones being attacked. Almost every other translation has it that the Jews are able to defend themselves against anyone who attacks them, including women and children. And you can see that um, in in the NIS, but the New Century version, which I don't have up on screen, simply says this, they may destroy, kill, and completely wipe out any uh, wipeout of the army of any state or people who attack them, and they are to do the same to women and children of that army. So I just wanted to draw that out because some of you may be looking at this and, and hear me talk about defending themselves against anyone who attacks them, including women and children, and wonder, well, where does that come from? That's, this is where it, where it comes from. Now, I think it's important to understand that the Jews weren't, giving, weren't given an edict to indiscriminately kill people. That, that's, that needs to be noted. The Jews were not allowed to be the aggressors the edict only gives the Jews the right to assemble and defend themselves against those who would attack them. So, I don't care if it's a man, woman, or child. Someone's coming at me to kill me. I'm, you know, I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to defend my family. And this, I think, reveals a lot about Mordecai. Because the, the, the king... Back on now. The king gave Mordecai his ring, gave him his authority to write whatever that he wants. He he could have he could have said, Hey, from this point on Jews are top dog. And I'm I'm gonna give you the entire year to wipe out people. Not not just those who are attacking you. But anybody that has a disagreement with you. I mean, he could have done something as, as far-fetched as that. But he doesn't. He limits, he limits what the Jews can do. And he says, basically, you're not allowed to take the offensive. You're not allowed to be an aggressor here. But you are allowed to defend yourself. So should people come and attack you, you are to defend yourself against them. And the other thing is this. It's only on one day. Because it's, it's, he's trying to mitigate what Haman issued with his decree. Because Haman said the same thing. On one day, this is what's going to happen. So, so Mordecai says, okay, on that day, on the day that they're supposed to be coming, let's be prepared for it. Be prepared to defend yourself. So what you see here is with Esther in Mordecai's faith, the boldness that that she has in coming before the king, the boldness that Mordecai has had throughout this entire story, that changed the course of history. Were it not for their faith and their courage, Mordecai would be dead. The Jews would have been wiped out. And very likely, we wouldn't have had a Savior. We wouldn't be here today. But because they acted in faith, boldly, courageously, God was able to move. And history is full of people like Esther and Mordecai. Think of these people. Abraham, Moses... Joshua, Rahab, David, Peter, Paul, Augustine, John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, William Wilberforce, William Carey, Elizabeth Fry, Robert Moffat, Hudson Taylor, Charlotte Lottie Moon, Amy Carmichael, Corey Ten Boom, Eric Little, Nate Saint, Jim Elliot, Billy Graham, and thousands of more people who dared to risk it all, to go to places that most of us, we wouldn't even think about going. They boldly stepped out of their comfort zones and risked their lives for the glory of God and for the good of others. Bold faith changes everything. So what kind of faith do you have? Where is God calling you right now to exercise bold faith? Well, not only does bold faith change the course of history, bold faith inspires joy. Verse 15 says, And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy amongst the Jews and a feast and a holiday. You know know what this tells me? It tells me that when we act in faith, God shows up. And when God shows up, there is great joy. There is great joy when God shows up. I love what the prophet Jeremiah uh, said in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. He says this, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord. Then the virgin will rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. The psalmist writes in Psalm 30 verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And then, if you go down just a few more verses to verse 11, you, you would read that he turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Perhaps just perhaps if if we learn to rejoice like the people of Persia, the Jewish people of Persia, maybe people would be more attracted to Jesus and his church. Does your faith bring you great joy? It should. And can other people see it? They should. Does your faith inspire obedience in others? Does it encourage them? Does it bring joy to their hearts? Bold faith changes everything. It changes our our direction in life. It changes our attitudes. It changes our affections. It changes everything, and it inspires great joy. Finally, bold faith also confronts the unbelieving world. When you look at what Esther did here and the decree that was written we, we read in, in verse 17, it says, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. People declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, I do think that, that many of these people were genuinely converted. And th- there are reasons for that. They, they just witnessed something that only God could do. I mean, they heard the stories. Remember, Zeresh, um, if Mordecai's of Jewish, you know, descent, if that's, you, you're you're a goner. Why why did she say that? Because she heard the stories. She understood who the God of of the Jews were. Was they also witnessed the ascension of Esther, a Jew? who is now queen over Persia. They saw the fall of Haman and the promotion of Mordecai. They observed the king's change of heart. And they read the edict that was issued in the name of the king. So I do think that some of these people became Jewish proselytes. But I also believe that many of these Jews... But many of these people became Jews, declared themselves to be Jews because it was advantageous to them. They were fearful of their own lives, that maybe the Jews might do to them what they're doing to those who are attacking them. It was a very pragmatic decision. And there are a lot of people like that today in the church. People attach themselves to the church and, and, and play Christian for all sorts of reasons. Here are just a few. To get your husband and your wife off your back. Yeah, I'll go to church. Because your parents make you come. Or you feel like your kids need Jesus. I can't tell you how many people I have met who have not been in church for, for years and years and years, but after they have kids, they, well, I think it's time we get back in church. How about to alleviate guilt and shame? They feel so terrible about things they do that they, they you know, yeah, let's, I'm going back to church. It's, you know, they, they want to do penance, which really, when you think about it, I'm going to do penance for my sin. I feel so terrible and guilty about what I'm going to do that I, I need to suffer, so I'm going to go to church. I, you know, I mean, this is, just... how about to, to prove to somebody that you've changed You're so desperate for someone to love you, to accept you, that you're willing to do anything. It could be that it's a requirement for community service. Maybe you need help paying the bills. Maybe you're here, and this happens an awful lot, is uh, to network, make business contacts, promote your business or a political candidate. Oh, here's a big one, especially especially, um, maybe for for younger people, and that is to to find a date or a mate, okay? When I was in Bible college, um, it was known, at that time, the school was known as CBC, Columbia Bible College, and there was a graduate school. Um, so that was uh, Columbia Graduate School, CGS. The, the joke was it was Columbia Bridal College and Columbia Groom School. Looking, looking for a spouse. Sometimes people attach themselves to the church to hide and to mask evil. So... You have to understand there's a big difference between declaring yourself a Christian and being a Christian. Scripture says to be a Christian, you must be born again. That's something that only God can do. God has to draw you to himself and you know that that, that this has happened or is happening when you feel the weight of your sin and you repent of it. You know it is happening when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope and receive him into your life as your Lord, his, your Lord and Savior. You know it when you are being conformed to the image of Christ. And you know it when you can't keep the good news to yourself. That's when you, that's when you know you belong to him. And some of you... Here or watching online may not have taken this first bold step of faith. And I would encourage you to do this. Christ came to earth and he died on the cross to take our sins away. He paid the penalty for our sin that we deserved so that we could be forgiven and receive the gift of eternal life. For some of us, we need to stop trusting in our own righteousness, our own good deeds, our church attendance, and we need to repent and receive Christ as Lord. John tells us in his gospel, chapter one, he says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, when a person repents, when a person trusts in Christ, everything changes. Bold faith changes everything. He receives new life, a new heart, a new spirit. He is a new creation. He has a new purpose, a new direction. He has new priorities. Esther and Mordecai understood that boldness isn't something you're born with. It's something you choose. They chose to act boldly in faith and they changed the course of history. They inspired joy in others. And they confronted an unbelieving world. If the world is gonna take notice of us, folks, it, it, or, or, or let me back up. If the world is gonna take notice of God, they've got to take notice of us. They've got to see him in us. And they're not gonna notice God in us by our political affiliations, our t-shirts, no matter how cool they are, our bumper stickers. They're gonna recognize God. They're gonna see God. They're gonna acknowledge God. They're gonna bow their knee before God when they see him in us. The world is not impressed with big churches, slick programs, TV personalities. They're not moved to repentance by our piety, Cheap moralism or eccentric legalism. What the world needs to see is Christians living out what they say they believe and in the power, the power of the Holy Spirit. It's my prayer that we will act in bold faith and in so doing, we will bring honor to God we will inspire joy in others and we will change the world. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning, for your word to us, for the challenge that it brings to us. Lord, I thank you for Esther, for Mordecai, for their willingness to be used of you. Lord, I pray that we would be equally willing for you to use us that we would step out in bold faith trusting you with our very lives lord i pray also that you would give us a love for one another and a love for those who do not yet know you lord give us a vision of hell motivate us move us out of our comfort zones lord we hold the keys of the kingdom We have the message of hope that people need to hear. And if we don't tell them, how will they hear? How will they know? So Lord, do a deep work in us. Build your church. Extend your kingdom. Use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.